You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. All right, guys. Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19 this morning, uh, talking about uh, the light little subject, marriage, uh, divorce, and adultery. So, kind of a light topic. Now, um, this morning is, uh, before we get going, though, in the, top, in the uh, message, I want to give you kind of a North Valley news update. Um, last weekend, if you were not here, there was a very special announcement about Pastor Jonathan and Meredith um, are moving to Dallas, uh, Dallas and uh, going back to Dallas Theological Seminary, and uh, Pastor Jonathan will one day become Dr. Seaborn, and uh, so he's going down to Dallas to get his Ph.D., uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary. So we're excited about that. But with that, uh, Meredith, somebody asked me the other day, does that mean Meredith's going with them? I'm like, I think so. I would hope so. Um, so yes, yes, yes. Uh, there, uh, but so I want to just share with you how, how is it going? People have been asking me that all week. So I'm going to take some time this morning just to process with you kind of what I'm thinking and feeling. And then um, what I am going to say is we're going to end this message series next week. Uh, that was not planned, but in light of all the things that are going on, next week's going to be the culmination of this message series that we're in um, called People Want to Know. And next week, my dad's coming into town, Dr. Robert Rice, Christian psychiatrist. We're going to be doing a special topic called uh, depression uh, and uh, talk about that together. So make sure you do come back next week, invite your friends be a really encouraging time, I think, for you to hear um, from a professional and also from a pastor what God's Word has to say about that topic. But in light of all that, we're going to start a new message series about change. And um, I want to help you process. I want to help you pray. I want to help you think. I want to help you search the Scriptures on the importance of change in your life and in the life of any church or any organization that you're part of. Everybody goes through change. So let me just share with you a few things of what I'm sensing and seeing that need to happen, and I will unpack this more clearly over a four-week period of time after we finish up this message series next week. So people ask me, how's it going? Personally, you need to know, as your pastor, um, I'm losing one of my closest friends in life, uh, Pastor Jonathan. He is my, somebody said, you're Batman and he's Robin. I'm like, that's kind of true, Yeah. That's how it works. So he's my sidekick, has been. My heart is sad because uh, Jonathan and Meredith are leaving, um, but my heart is full of hope and optimism because I really believe God loves his church. I really believe that God called uh, us to be here, establish a church called North Valley to reach the North Valley for Christ. I believe that we've successfully, by God's grace, navigated through the startup phase Nine out of 10 churches fail in their first five years, and we're thriving, and we're going to continue to move forward. Um, My heart is sad and losing a personal loss, but my heart is full of optimism and hope about what God has ahead. I think the first five years of our church was characterized by the startup phase. The next five years of our church will be characterized by a build-up phase, building up people, people to enter into ministries and to build up those ministries financially, resources, strengthening those over the next five years. And all of you have got to be a part of that in order for that vision to take fruition. So practically, I want you to know I am going to stay focused. 
I'm not taking speaking engagements this next year. I'm not going to help organize a new conference. I'm not going to go do weddings out of state. I'm not doing that. I've said no, 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 repeatedly knowing that that change is coming. So practically speaking, I will be more present. And practically speaking, it is a very good time for, for me finally to really think about the people more. We just finished, we've been on campus about one year. Can we celebrate that? We've been on campus one year. And that's a massive project. So personally, I'm doing good. Optimistic, practically, stay really focused. Um, And then positions. Let me talk about uh, positions within the church. In light of Jonathan and Meredith leaving, please write this down on the back of your notes or somewhere in there, is that there are many positions that will be available, and I'm going to list out a number of positions that I need you to help me either recommend somebody or become that person, be that person. At this stage of the ministry life of the church, we're not looking for people that don't have experience in these positions, but people that do have experience in these positions. The first is kids. With Meredith leaving, it creates an enormous gap. And we will, we will have paid and unpaid positions available immediately, right now. We can train. We've got six weeks with Jonathan and Meredith before they leave town. And... Uh, May 20th will be their last Sunday serving, working together, and we're going to have a big party on May 20th that night. But right now, we have paid positions and unpaid positions available where you can get on-the-job training. By God's grace, we have, two, we have several uh, wonderful candidates that have great experience, that have uh, put their name in the hat, but I want to encourage you. I don't want to miss anything. If you have a heart and you have experience for kids' program to help build up the ministry, please write in that comment section on your Connect card, hey, I'm interested. I, I think I know somebody that'd be great, whatever that is, and, and let us know. We have paid and unpaid positions for uh, administrative support immediately. Where if, if there was a person that had great experience in an administrative work and support, um, we need that, to hire that. Um, we need paid and unpaid uh, people in these positions for this church to move forward. Um, Right after first service, several people came up to me and just said, hey, I've got experience. I've done that for a long time, and I've been praying. And I'm like, that is awesome. Uh, I'll put your name name at the top of the list, and we'll we'll, we'll contact you. I, I need you to know that this is a community church, and people from the community within close proximity of the church that love this church need to be here, working, serving in this church to build up the church. Administrative support, if that's you, put your name on that comment card, turn it in after service in the, in the giving box or over here at the guest services area. Um, we're gonna have, a, thirdly, pastoral positions, paid and unpaid positions available. And we are gonna go on a pastoral search for an executive pastor, but immediately we have needs for pastoral assistance. If you've got experience in that category and you really want to help and you love this church and you love Jesus, then I'd encourage you to say, hey, or maybe you know somebody, let us know. Um, Fourthly, we have campus operations. Um, We have uh, 
unpaid positions there. We can't afford to pay everybody, uh, but we have unpaid positions there that help to have to help us manage. We own and operate on a nine-acre campus. And the property, we've been in here one year, and by God's grace, we just hired uh, a cleaning service to clean our, our campuses. So first of all, I want to say thanks to all the volunteers that clean the campus week after week. Let's say thank them. Um, but we need campus operations. A meeting tonight with several guys that are in the church and they've overseen properties and they're just strong leaders and they're going to take up and build up a team for campus operations. But we need people to join that team. If that's you, you have a heart to care for the campus, a heart to care for the operations of the campus, we'd love for you to put your name in the hat. Lastly, worship arts. Um, we have paid and unpaid positions in that category as well. We cannot move forward in this next phase of ministry without building up a volunteer base, a stronger volunteer base in the area of worship arts. And again, I said it earlier, we're looking for people with experience. Uh, in all of these categories, it's very, very helpful. So I want to encourage you, if you play an instrument or you sing or you're uh, passionate about that, um, I want you to explore with me being a part of that. We can't make it move it forward without that kind of help and commitment. So I shared that why so, so quickly, because last week I made the biggest announcement that our church has experienced in the last five years, that the executive pastor is headed down to Dallas Seminary and the, the director of the kids program is going with them. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, so we got to move fast, and we can do this together, and I'm optimistic, and I believe that God wants to use you to be a part of this next phase of ministry. And so let me pray, and then we're going to jump into God's Word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the time together in your Word. Uh, thank you that, uh, Lord, for what's going on in the life of the church, this is an invitation. This is an opportunity. To, we are being tested. We are being challenged. And God, you meet us right in the midst of it. And we love you. We thank you ahead of time for what you're going to do in the lives of North, people in North Valley to strengthen and sustain and to thrive and to be built up in the next five years. We pledge and dedicate that period of time to you and ask for you to build up incredible ministers, incredible ministries that would exponentially have an impact to reach the North Valley for Jesus Christ, we pray. To you be all glory in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Okay. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into God's Word. This is a, um, I said it, it, it was a light topic. I was being sarcastic. Uh, but we're going to be talking about marriage and divorce and adultery. Um, this is what people want to know. We did a research project and found out within about a five-mile radius, these are some of the top Google searches in our area. What does the Bible have to say about this stuff? My dad, my dad uh, is a Christian psychiatrist, and he raised me with kind of this mindset. There are two kinds of marriages. There's bad marriages and hard marriages. The hard marriages are the good marriages, and anything of value takes hard work. You're going to do really good. You're going to crush it in your career. You better work hard. You do an incredible job in, in the sports team, you better work really hard. You're going to do a great job as a student, make all A's, you better work really hard. You want to have a great marriage, you better work really hard. 
Anything of value takes hard work. That's what it takes. Um, Leslie and I, um, I would say the first year that we were married was the hardest year of marriage I could ever wish upon anybody. We met and we got married within nine months. We were college kids, fell in love with her. I came out of a lifestyle of sex, drugs, rock and roll. That was my deal. So I didn't know how to do relationships right. I'd been saved for just a few years. I was discipled by the youth pastor there at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Mark DeMoz and Jeff Cal. And I came to them and I said, this beautiful girl, I'd love to marry her. And uh, they said, I want to help you do that. She's a wonderful gal. But we didn't know hardly anything about conflict resolution. How many of you would say uh, conflict resolution is not on the top of your list of gift sets for your marriage? Raise your hand. Okay, just a few honest people here. On our honeymoon, I'll tell you this story and get, jump into it. On our honeymoon, um, we had our first fight. We hadn't fought ever. And then on our honeymoon, we had our first fight. I don't even remember what it was about. I had themed the, 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 um, the honeymoon adventure romance. And I, I liked the adventure, and she wanted the romance. But her definition of romance was different than my definition of romance. And then it came time where we were going to do something together in, in that morning, and it didn't go as according to plan. And um, we'd just been married just a short little time. And she says to me, I want to spend time with you this morning. And I said, well, I had already planned to go hunting this morning. We were up in northern Arkansas. And I thought you wanted to do adventure, and this is part of my adventure is going on hunting. And she says, well, did you invite me? I was like, well, no, I don't think you like to hunt, but I just wanted to have a little time to hunt. So... She gets upset, and she, she sits down on the ground, and then um, she, I asked her if I could share this, and she doesn't like to remember this part of the story, but this is what happened. She sits down on the ground, and she starts to complain about how the honeymoon was going, and it didn't meet, it fit her expectations. And then I say something back like, why are you complaining so much? I mean, you know, I just want to go have a little hunt trip just for a little bit. She says, it's our honeymoon, and then she goes on, and she says, you know what? Just take me home. I want to go home with my mom. And I said, what'd you say? And I was on the way out to go hunting, and she says, take me home to my mom. Uh, I want to go home. And she's crying at this point. And it like uh, alarmed something in me. I had my shotgun in my hand, and I said, you are home. <laughs> that didn't go so well. <laughs> she got really upset, and I heard her crying really loud, and I shut the door, and I went off by myself on the loneliest, most miserable squirrel hunt I'd ever been on. And I'm sitting there, and I was wearing this ring, this ring right here, I've been married 15 years, and I said to myself, this is such a foreign object to me. It's so cold. It doesn't really fit. What have I done? I'm married. Um, I walked back into the house after spending time with the Lord, and the Lord said, you were a jerk. You were rude. You need to go back and you need to apologize. Ask her to forgive you and tell her that you love her. And you need to start over. I've never stopped doing that. Always have to do that. Marriage is hard work. You've got to admit your sin. You've got to admit your error, where you go wrong. But anything of value is, uh, takes hard work. What does Jesus say about marriage? Jesus says this, when asked about the area of divorce and marriage, he tells uh, a group of uh, Pharisees, religious leaders of the day, to give clarification about the terms of what marriage really is and are there grounds for divorce. At that point in time, there was a lot of speculation about different kinds of uh, ways that a person could divorce one another. 
the, uh, the popular cultural perspective on divorce in that day, if you look in your Bible, Matthew chapter nine, 19, uh, this group of Pharisees comes up and tests him, and they ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife at any cause? And the reality is, is that th- at that time, there were three different views on divorce in marriage. There was a conservative thought, a liberal thought, and then just a crazy thought. The, the conservative thought was headed up by Rabbi Shemai. Uh, he believed very much what's a very conservative thought for divorce. If there's an adulter- adulterous relationship, then there's grounds for divorce. The liberal thought was headed up by a Jewish leader called Rabbi Hillel, and he believed that you could get a divorce for any reason, bad cooking, brawling, uncovered uh, head uh, for dress and clothing, uh, or spoke badly about the in-laws. Um, there was also a crazy kind of thought in that culture about divorce is by Rabbi Akiba. I don't know how to pronounce that, but Akiba, that sounds like an interesting rabbi. He sounds crazy himself. And he believed the idea that if you find a woman more attractive, that men had the opportunity just to divorce them. So it's in that context Jesus says this about divorce. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. That's Adam and Eve. He takes them to the original design. He kind of wakes these guys up and says, don't you know that the, the, the issue about uh, marriage and divorce, it goes back from the very beginning. In verse 5, and he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and he be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. There's a number of things that I want to point out in this passage, but God's original plan for marriage is this, is first that there is a plan for one man to marry one woman and experience oneness. That's the plan. One man, one woman, experience oneness. That's the plan from the very beginning. Jesus was quoting from Genesis chapter uh, 1 and chapter 2. He's describing how God formed and fashioned and made marriage. Marriage is the foundation for every family. The family is the foundation for every uh, neighborhood. The family is the foundation for the community, our nation, our state, all of that. You disintegrate the family, you disintegrate the community. The plan is for one man to marry. In in research today, 9 out of 10 uh, people will get married. 9 out of 10, that's a lot. Um, Still today, uh, people are waiting longer to get married, and the majority of people that are getting married, unfortunately, are divorcing. Divorce has risen in the United States by 700% in the last 100 years. Um, people are waiting longer to get married as well today. It used to be kind of the cornerstone of the family. Now it's become the capstone. They wait till everything's set up, and then people are getting married. But the plan is between one man and one woman to marry, to experience oneness. The oneness is described in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, where the Apostle Paul talks about this incredible mystery that the marriage relationship, it has a purpose. So what is the purpose? God's original plan for marriage is the purpose is this, we'll show it on the screen for you, is that the purpose is to meet each other's needs, grow in holiness, and reflect the love of Christ to the world through marriage. By meeting each other's needs, there's physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. When you get married, you get a friend, you get a soulmate, you get somebody to do life with. 
I like to say that there's three kinds of marriages. There's marriages that are back-to-back. These are people that are angry and frustrated at each other, and they don't want to deal with it. And then there's marriages that are shoulder-to-shoulder. They both, uh, husband and wife, are working and tackling new territory and doing things, and they're really busy. And then there's marriages that are face-to-face. They're close. They're friends. Leslie and I are friends. She's my bride, but she's my friend. She's my best friend. The way God's designed that the purpose of marriage is, is that you meet each other's need. I meet Leslie's needs, and Leslie meets my needs. We grow together in holiness. People often think that the plan or the purpose for marriage is that you just get married to be happy. Happiness happens in marriage, but holiness is the foundation of marriage, that you're going to grow together, sharpen each other, encourage one another. Then lastly, it's to reflect and share the love of Christ to the world through your marriage. You say, how do you do that? Well, when a husband and a wife have a marriage that demonstrates faithfulness, it reflects the faithfulness of God to his bride, the church. When a husband and a wife in their marriage demonstrate forgiveness in their marriage, it reflects the forgiveness that Christ offers to his bride, the church. When a husband and a wife in their marriage reflect or demonstrate unending love in their relationship, covenantal love in their relationship to their children, to their neighbors, to their family, when a husband and a wife does that and demonstrates love at that level, it reflects the love of Christ that, God, that Christ has to his bride, the church. Does that make sense? Your marriage is the greatest witness to the love of Christ. Your marriage is the greatest witness to the faithfulness of Christ. Your marriage is the greatest witness that reflects the forgiveness that Christ offers. The purpose of marriage is not only that, but there's a permanency in marriage. It's a lifetime covenant commitment to God and to others. In Malachi, the Bible says that God hates divorce. It says the Lord of Israel that he hates divorce. It's a lifetime covenant commitment. How do you stay married? My encouragement to you is how you stay married when you, if we can acknowledge marriages are hard um, because everybody sins all the time. And so we offend and we hurt people, especially our spouses. How do you keep that covenant commitment? I want to encourage you to keep the word of God central in your marriage. The word of God is like, I like to say, is like the referee for Leslie and I. And what happens is, is we think at times that we're competing against each other in different teams. It's not true, but that's what we think. And we fight each other. And the referee says, what are you doing? You're on the wrong team. You're out of bounds. Come back together. Leslie and I do devotionals about five days a week. Every day we get up and we pray together. The couple that prays together, you got it. So it's important in your relationship to see that there's a plan, a purpose, specifically in marriage, and there's a permanency. The Bible says God hates divorce. So are there biblical grounds for divorce? Yes, there are. According to Jesus, there are. Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. They said to him, uh, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away. 
He said to them, here's why, because of their hardness of heart, Moses allowed. Let's stop right there. The religious leaders did the same thing. They just made the first mistake. They didn't understand God's original plan and purpose, so Jesus took them back to Genesis and said, check out the scriptures. Haven't you heard? Here, they're making another mistake. They don't even know what Moses was really talking about. They reference Moses, and they say something that's a lie. They're misguided. They, miss, they don't capture it. They think Moses commanded divorce, and Jesus says, no, Moses allowed it. There's a difference between a command and a concession. Moses did that because there was a hardness of heart. In the Bible, God never um, condones divorce. He never commands divorce, but he does give a concession for divorce. He gives permission for a divorce when there's ungodly, unrepentive, patterns of sin, specifically we're going to see the restrictive clause in which Jesus argues would be for an adulterous relationship. He says, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Verse 9, so here's what he said. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What's interesting is this has been Uh, theologically called the exception clause. Jesus gives an exception. And it's only recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not recorded in uh, Mark, Luke, or John. But Matthew is inerrant, authoritative scripture. And Matthew records this very likely because he's answering a lot of the pharisaical Jewish questions and thoughts, paradigms, and problems as it relates to marriage and divorce. So stick with me here. He says, and whoever divorces his wife, Jesus says, except for sexual immorality. There's an exception. Clause. It's noted in in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, that it's that same reference is, but it's clarified, at least in the NIV translation, that it's marital unfaithfulness. So the question comes is, what does sexual immorality mean? Well, the Greek word there is pornea. It's the word that we use for pornography or porn. What is it referenced to? As I think it references specifically to marital unfaithfulness, sex outside of the marriage. It's definitely a, a high offense, and Jesus says this, sexual immorality are the grounds for divorce. It's an exception clause. And you say to me, well, I'm not so sure about that. Where else in the Bible would there be biblical grounds for divorce? How about Matthew chapter 1? How about Joseph and Mary? Joseph is described to be a what? A righteous or a just man. And once he finds out Mary is pregnant with child, what does he choose to do? Help me out. What does he choose to do? Divorce her quietly. And the Bible says that he was a just and righteous man. There's a pattern uh, uh, within that there is an exception that there are some exceptions to uh, 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 a divorce. And that would be Jesus restricts it, I believe, to adulterous relationships. So question comes is, uh, should you get a divorce or not if your spouse is cheated on you? This is not in your notes, but I would say, first of all, I don't think so. I wouldn't just immediately. Jesus does not command divorce. Jesus does not say, hey, go do this if your spouse cheats on you. He talks about the allowance, and he gives an exception. 
So here's the question. Should I stay with my spouse if they have cheated on me? I'd encourage you to consider three things. This is not in your notes, but you might want to write this down if your spouse has cheated on you. The first is, is that you need to consider your spouse's character. Second, consider your own heart. And then third, I would encourage you to consider your future. Let me say that again. If your spouse has cheated on you and had an affair, an adulterous relationship, I believe the Bible teaches that you have absolute grounds for divorce. And you can walk away from that thing and be done. Should I, do I think you should do that? No, I don't. Why? Because the Bible also tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increases, grace, what? Abounds. So does God want to redeem, restore? I think he does. Divorce is not God's plan A. It's an exception to all, all, all circumstances. So first is consider your spouse's character. Is this a good person that has done a bad thing? If the spouse had an episode or an event, and then you're just trying to divorce them as quick as possible, I would ask you, encourage you to back up and evaluate the person's character. Consider your spouse's character. Ask if they've, have they sincerely humbled themselves and been repentant. If they've repented from their sin, that means that they're turning away from their sin and they're turning back towards the Savior. And the Bible tells us that when it comes to sin, the way we deal with sin is that we turn away from our sin and that we can go to the throne of God with confidence because there is mercy and grace there, according to Hebrews. Secondly, I'd encourage you to consider your own heart. You have to ask the question, if your spouse has cheated on you, are you willing to experience the hurt and to potentially forgive this person? If you are an unforgiving person, I taught you last week, forgiven people forgive people. But if you are closed off to that, I don't know if your heart's ready for that. Lastly, I would encourage you to consider your future. Do you want to live a person who's divorced? Do you want to be single again? What about your kids? If you choose to exercise your biblical right to divorce your spouse because there was unfaithfulness in the marriage, what do you think that's going to do to your kids? I've got plenty of stories of families where the husband or the wife have been unfaithful and they reconcile and they redeem and they move forward and the kids hold together, and it's a beautiful, wonderful, grace-filled, God-honoring, Christ-centered marriage. I just want to tell you, like, you don't pull the trigger fast if you've been sinned against in that area. Consider your future. Consider your kids. Consider your work. You're ready to, maybe you were in one household income, or maybe you had two, and now you're down to one, and your work is a big deal. So some of you might be asking the question as well is what about say I got a divorce or say I get a divorce for an unbiblical reason. According to Jesus, the only reason to get a divorce, according to Jesus, is sexual immorality. I would clarify uh, uh, adulterous relationship. That's your grounds for divorce. Am I advising you to do that? No. I don't think you should. I think you should try to seek reconciliation as long as the, the, the two of you are on the same page. But what if you get a divorce for an unbiblical reason, like the liberal thought of the Jewish culture? 
uh, for any reason, bad cooking, brawling, fighting, you don't like the way the person looks anymore, or whatever, they're too lazy, they're unloving, uh, they don't, they're not intimate, and you just say, I got a divorce, and now I'm getting remarried. If you got divorced for an unbiblical reason, and then you get remarried, according to Scripture, newsflash, sorry to tell you, you started off your second marriage in an adulterous state. You are an adulterer. Why? Because to God, the, the first marriage was uh, never ended. Say you get a divorce for a financial something, or you're fighting over the kids, or you say, I'm just not happy. A lot of people say, I'm just not happy anymore. And you get a divorce. Well, when you get remarried, stick with me, hang with me, you start the relationship in an adulterous relationship. So what do you do? Do you divorce the, the second spouse? My encouragement is absolutely not. First of all, look what Jesus says. Look back at the scripture. Let's pull it back up on the screen. Is that he is recognizing that there is a marriage in place even if it's not for the exception clause. Look back in the scripture and it says in verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What he is doing is acknowledging that there are marriages that are uh, remarriages. And if you remarry and you were divorced formally uh, for unbiblical reasons, it is a marriage to God. As long as you stay with that spouse, love that spouse. So what do you do? If you started your second marriage in an adulterous relationship, you do the same thing every sinner would do. You just turn to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. I got, I got a divorce for unbiblical reasons. Please forgive me. And what does the Bible say about that? Does he ramp up the shadow of shame over your life or increase the guilt and pour it out and ask you to atone for your sins? No. All he says for you to do is give your sin to the Lord and he'll give you righteousness. All you have to do is go to him and say, Lord, I made a mistake in my past, but today I'm confessing that and I believe in my heart, Lord, that you forgive sin. And so I'm coming to the throne of grace with confidence today. You keep your marriage together. Some of you are clapping. Great. Uh, you keep your marriage together because it is a marriage, and Jesus even acknowledges that. So you stay together if you're remarried. So my encouragement to you is that you stay together. If there was divorce for unbiblical reasons, and then you get remarried, you need to know you don't need to think of yourself as a second-class Christian, a second-class citizen. You are loved by God. You are a Christian. You have a Christian home. You have a Christian marriage. And the Bible says where sin increases, grace abounds. So here's another question. Is what about divorce according to anybody else in the Bible? Let's look at what the Apostle Paul says about being married to an unbeliever, and is there any other exception for divorce, according to the Bible, specifically the Apostle Paul? First of all, I want to point out to you, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, and he, in many regards, is, if you look at uh, chapter 7 in Corinthians, is he seems to be filling in the gaps where maybe areas of ministry that Jesus specifically didn't teach on in the area of marriage and divorce uh, in his earthly ministry, and and the Apostle Paul is addressing issues because the church in Corinth was a bunch of people that did what I did, live with sex, drugs, rock and roll, apart from Christ, become Christians, and some 
Husbands became Christians, and then the wife didn't become a Christian. Or some wives became Christians, and then the husbands weren't Christians. So the question comes is, how do I live? The Apostle Paul deals with that. He says in verse 13 of chapter 7, uh, he says, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So let me stop right there. So let me make this personal. Um, I had an aunt, and I'm sharing this with permission. Um, she and her husband, um, Scott and Christy, that's their name. It's my wife's sister, Christy. They became, uh, they got married. They were not Christians. And then guess what? Just uh, Christy had her first baby, and she started going to church, and she became a Christian. Guess who didn't become a Christian? Scott. He didn't become a Christian. And for 10 years, Christy was the Christian bringing the kids, and guess who else to church? Scott, for 10 years, and she's a Christian, he's not, and Christy's down on her knees praying every day that Scott will become a Christian. She read this passage right here, if a woman has a husband and he is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Was Scott a Christian? No. Did Scott believe in Jesus? No. Did he... Love the Bible? No. But he consented. He said, you're a Christian, I'm not, but we can go to church together. For 10 years, Christy prayed for him, and she understood this verse. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. Now, that sounds interesting, doesn't it? For the unbelieving husband, that would have been Scott, is made holy. What does that mean? Big theological word here matrimonial sanctification. When you're married and you have a Christian in the home, that is a Christian home. And anybody in that household has a blessing from God that there is a Christian living in that home. And it is not a people like in Scott's position, he was not a Christian. He did not have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ but there was a sense of God's work and God's blessing upon his life. The Apostle Paul says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his what? His wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So, my encouragement to you, many of you ladies, I've met you, talked to you, and you asked me to pray for your husband, and you pray with them. You need to know, you don't need to feel shame or embarrassment. You have a Christian family because you're Christian. You have a blessing on your household just because you're the Christian in that household. It is matrimonial sanctification. God's at work in your home, through your family, through you ladies. Men, you have unbelieving spouses, wives. Let me tell you something. You don't have an unchristian home. You have a Christian home. You have God's blessing on your home. God's going to use you to be a great influence to your family. You should pray for them. You should not divorce them. If, and, and there is an exception. And we'll get to that, but let me finish the story with Christy. So for 10 years, Christy prayed for Scott. Dear Lord, change my husband's heart. Let him turn towards you. Make him a Christian, Lord. Help him to fall in love with you, Christ. May these scriptures breathe life to me. At the time, Christy was a part of this Bible study called uh, BSF, Bible Study Fellowship. She was growing 
in her faith. She was loving it. Her kids are loving the church, Fellowship Bible Church, the church I grew up in. And Scott's an unbeliever. And then one day, one day, Scott's in a church service in October, 10 years into the marriage, unbelieving husband, believing wife, consented to live together, and they accepted it, but Christy was praying. One day in a church service, Scott hears the gospel message, and it clicks. How many times have you heard the gospel, and it took time to set in? That's why at North Valley we say people have got to belong before they believe. You've got to have an environment and a space for that. The home was a grace-based home. The home was a Christian home. The home was a forgiving home. Was Scott a Christian? No, but one day in October, 10 years into their marriage, he becomes a Christian. God saved him. And he chooses not to share with Christy in October. He waited for Christmas Day. And he told her on Christmas, he said, my gift to you is to let you know that you now have a new brother in Christ as a Christian. And I am a Christian and I love Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was cool. You can celebrate that. Um, did Christy have grounds for divorce? No, not really, because Scott wanted to stay in the marriage. Look what the Apostle Paul says. Uh, but if the un- verse 15, let's go to verse 15. It says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, And God has called you to peace. So let's just say, what if Scott said this to Christy? You know what? I'm tired of your Christianity. You know what? I'm tired of the church. You know what? I don't like the way the kids are acting. You restrict what movies we watch. You act legalistic, blah, 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 blah. I don't like you. In fact, I don't love you, and I want a divorce. You know what Christy could have said? She could have said, well... According to uh, the Apostle Paul, the grounds for divorce, if an unbelieving partner separates and says, I'm done with you, the Apostle Paul says, let it be so. Why? Because you need peace in your home. Shalom on the home. You can't be at war in constant battle with your spouse if there's an unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse and you have a totally different foundation and you're constantly fighting about it. You deserve a better life. And the Apostle Paul says, let it be so. It is a rare case and it is an exception. Most times, unbelievers actually like Christian values. (laughs) Why? Because it's good. It's great. The Christian life, I've said it so many times, the Christian life is the best life. So, he says, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So, you're not trapped if you are married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever says, I don't like you, I don't love you, I don't want to be married to you anymore, or for whatever reason, they just say, we're not going to do this. You're a Christian, I'm not a Christian. You have a, an escape clause that in such cases, the brother or sister, whoever it is that's Christian, is not bound. That's what that word means, bound to that marriage. God has called you to peace. So let me back up. What are, the, what are the exceptions? What does the Bible say about divorce? You have two very, very clear exceptions. Number one would be adultery. Number two, abandonment by an unbeliever. So my encouragement to you 
is if you're in a relationship where the unbeliever is waging war against your own soul and your family and your values, to take it very seriously, seek out wise counsel, go into God's word, don't do life alone. But realize this, sobering words from the Apostle Paul in verse 16. He says, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You can't save anybody. But what you can do is pray for them and ask them and pray that they meet the Savior. So in closing, here's what I want to encourage you to do, is put it into practice. When you need to get help, get help. I want to encourage you to attend a marriage conference. If you're on the brink of divorce or you just want to tune up and strengthen your marriage, I want to encourage you to be a part of a marriage conference. Leslie and I are going to be uh, going down to Weekend to Remember. There's a, a slide on this. I want to encourage you every 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, every five-year increment, I would encourage you to go get a tune-up on your marriage. It'll change your life. It'll change your marriage. Um, Leslie and I have been doing that every five years, and we encourage couples to go. So that's on your program. You could do that. Secondly, I want to encourage you to don't do life alone. You don't need to hide under the, the, the cloud of shame or guilt or despair. You need to know that there are people just like you that struggle and have hard, challenging circumstances and are considering divorce or want to get a divorce. I want to encourage you to don't do life alone. Join a neighborhood group where people can pray for you, encourage you, and help you. Lastly, I want to encourage you to know that no one's perfect and we need God's grace. In every one of those situations, you've got an unbelieving spouse that wants to leave, there's still God's grace. When you've got an adulterous relationship with somebody that's cheated on you, you still have God's grace. And for every ounce of sin in your life, you need to know as a Christian, there's two ounces of grace and mercy. There's always more grace than there is sin. That is when they put Jesus on the cross and they whipped him and they beat him for every pound of uh, torture and pain and punch, there was two pounds of mercy and grace flowing forward. It sounds like a scandalous thing from the Christian faith, but I'm just telling you, the Apostle Paul says it's unfathomable, it's unsearchable, the depths and the knowledge and the love of Christ, the grace of God. There is more grace than there is sin for the Christian and for the marriage. So let me pray and we're going to go into a time of communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for today and the word of God and the truth that is there, but the grace of God. And we find that today in communion as well, that we can come to you and experience your grace and your mercy, Lord, as we reflect and we remember the great uh, sacrifice that was made on the cross to give us forgiveness. And we can approach the throne of God through the cross, that there is grace and mercy made available through that. For everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, there is a forgiveness and a freedom of sin. And so, Lord, I pray now that we'd remember your great love, how reckless it may seem at times and scandalous that your love increases, Lord, even in the midst of our sin. Um, So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.